So, for those of you that didn't think there was an end to it, we have made it to the end of chapter 6. And one of the well, most well-known verses uh, in the entire Bible, uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A very fitting end to this chapter that we now know to contain some very vital doctrines uh, with regards to the Christian faith and the way of salvation. Having spent the amount of time that we have spent on this chapter, I would hope that there is no one here that is still in bondage, as it were. This is the chapter more than, it, than all the others that shows us the way of true liberty. So we lead off here with that word for, which just points us back to all that has gone on before this. This is the conclusion of the argument that Paul has been stating and that began in verse 20, which is his reasoning that we should not ignore the command that he laid down for us in verse 19. What we are commanded to do as Christians, not in order to become Christians, but rather because we are Christians. Verse 19, he says, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There are our marching orders. Those are our marching orders. Take all that you are, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and present yourself in righteous servitude to God. The more effort you put into this servitude, the more swift will be your sanctification. Just like you used to spend every waking breath and effort in self-service, now in the very same way, he says, you are to spend every waking breath and effort in service to righteousness. Uh, Paul then goes on to make the argument as to why this is our only reasonable response. He does this in verses 20 and 22. And then here in verse 23, he gives us the summation of the ultimate end to which the two types of life are going to lead. This verse ends the argument of the entire chapter, uh, which we stated at the beginning of our study. If you remember, Paul at the end of chapter 5 is making a great statement regarding our assurance of salvation based on the fact of our position in Christ. Remember, he goes through all, all of chapter 5. You used to be in Adam, now you are in Christ. So that's the whole argument in chapter 5. So he makes this great statement regarding our assurance of salvation based on the fact of our position in Christ and the results being that we are no longer enslaved to sin and we are no longer under the law. And he's going to continue that same treatise. Remember we said at the beginning of this, he continues, chapter 5 continues into chapter 8. Uh, but for the moment, he has paused here in chapter 6 to argue the point that he made about our freedom from sin. And then in chapter 7, he's going to argue our freedom from the law, making it plain that we are justified by faith alone, and also to make it plain that anyone who uses this freedom as an excuse to continue in sin has zero knowledge of the truth of the gospel. 
He's spending this entire chapter proving by his argument that there is no way anyone with any sense could believe that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. Uh, This verse 23 is a summary statement of the entirety of chapter 6, and I dare say a summary statement of the entire gospel. It is virtually a repeat of the last verse in chapter chapter 5, where he says, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord in which he has spent the last 22 verses expounding and explaining, and then he concludes all of that with, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Good news for all that have ears to hear. And I will... uh, I'm sure that it will come as no surprise to you that there is approximately half an hour of doctrine to be found in that one sentence. (laughs) Okay. Um, Three things immediately that we see on the surface. The first is that there are two possibilities facing every individual who comes into this world. Only two, no more, no less. He says the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life, made possible how? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Same message that Jesus taught on many, many occasions. He says, your house is on the sand or it is on the rock. You have passed through the broad gate or you have passed through the narrow gate. You are either on the broad way or you are on the narrow way. You are either serving God or you are serving mammon. There really are only two possibilities ever for anyone, okay? Now, the world makes a great hoorah over things like nationalism and racism and political division and social constructs, but biblically, the only divide that is going to matter is found right here. That's it. Secondly, these two possibilities are completely different from one another, as we have seen exhaustively in this chapter thus far. In Adam or in Christ, under law or under grace, slaves to sin or slaves to obedience, and on and on and on. Two possibilities. They are all together and entirely different. Uh, These two views have not one thing in common with each other. There are no shades of gray that move from one to the other. There are no shades in the spiritual realm whatsoever. Everything is black or white. You do not gradually pass from one to the other. These are stark and complete differences, absolute contrasts. The Christian and the non-Christian have absolutely nothing in common, at least spiritually. The Christian is living a new life that is totally different from being dead in trespasses and sins. Can't get much more different than alive versus dead, now can you? Okay? That's as different as we can get. Which brings us to the third point, and that each of these two positions that are so essentially different from one another has its own internal consistency. Each one is consistent within itself. In other words, each of these positions follows their own law. 
and lead to final ends that are inevitable. You start out on one, one road and you are bound to arrive at a certain destination. If you start out on the other road, you are bound to arrive at an entirely different destination. So what Paul is emphasizing here is the ultimate difference found in the end that each one leads to. As we studied on last week at the close of verse 22, he says, You have become slaves of God, and the fruit of that leads to sanctification and ultimately to eternal life. This after telling us in verse 21 that the other way was death. Kind of like, Look here, this way leads to death. You know, you go this way, it leads to death. This way over here leads to sanctification and ultimately eternal life. And in case you didn't get it the first time I said it, here it is again. Okay? So as this is apparently very important, let's look at Paul's contrast of the two ways of living. He gives us three headings. First heading being the master that we serve. The analogy he has been using is slavery. Okay, that's what we've been talking about for the last five, six weeks. Okay, uh, so the first contrast confronting every soul on this earth concerns the master that we serve. Here again, we have two options. It is either sin or it is God. He says the wages of sin, that's the one master, okay, or the gift of God, that's the other master. Every person in this world right now is either a slave to sin or else a slave to God. There is no neutrality. There is no fence sitting. You cannot serve God and mammon. The one thing that matters is, whom are you serving? Who is our master? This is our reminder that all the talk about morality and ethics and conduct and doing good and all such things is completely irrelevant The only question we need to ask of any man is, who is his master? To whom or what is he a slave? That is the one question that the Bible asks about every one of us. Whom do you serve? For whom are you living? Who is your master? Is it sin or is it God? This is especially crucial now in this country. All any politician or actor or athlete has to do is to spout off a few Bible verses and all of evangelicalism is ready to jump on their bandwagon. And it's always the same reason. Can you just imagine how much good someone so famous could do if they were a Christian? Well, spoiler alert, they can't do jack, okay? It is God who works in us both to will and to, and to work for his good pleasure. And then 99.9% of the time we find out that they weren't what they claimed to be after all. Seems like 240 years of politicians using God as a means rather than an end would have taught us a lesson by now, but we just keep taking the bait. Who is their master? Mammon is their master, Okay. You cannot serve both. It won't work. It won't ever work. So here's the point of all of this chapter, this epistle, even the entire Bible. You must not judge men by the good that they do, nor by the good and nice things that they say. There is only one question that matters. Is it all done for the glory of God? If it is not, then it is all done in slavery to sin and to Satan. 
There are only two masters. Remember, you cannot serve both, only one. When these famous people, regardless of their calling, be they pastors or politicians or teachers or janitors, are being lauded and praised and followed by the masses, be on your guard and do not take the bait. If they are not living to the glory of God and to Jesus Christ, they are in exactly the same category as the vilest and foulest sinners in the world at that moment. All of their righteousness, he says, is what? Filthy rags. It is the master whom you serve that determines what you are. That was Paul's statement in verse 16, and it is his statement again here. And that is the first point. The master we serve will determine our end. Second point, that being the contract or conditions under which we serve our master. Again, they are different and they have nothing in common. On the one hand, we have wages, and on the other hand, we have what? A free gift, okay? The wages of sin is death. Generally agreed that a better translation of that word would be rations. All the commentaries I looked at said that that's a better word. Rations given to the soldiers and to the slaves in Rome, made to work as slaves, and then given a ration of food and maybe a bit of money. So this is talking about the rations of sin, meaning something earned, something that you deserve, payment for services rendered maybe. But the question has to be asked, who decides? Who or what decides what rations are to be given to these slaves of sin? Well, the answer is, of course, the law. Okay, The law has stated plainly and clearly what the result of such a life and conduct is to be. Sin and law always go together. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, which we're going to go over again and again, over and over and over again when we get to chapter 7, Lord willing. Okay. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The message declared by angels was, of course, the word of the law as given to Moses. And that law says that every transgression and every disobedience must receive a just retribution. That just retribution, Paul tells us, is what? Death. Okay? So on the one hand, you have wages as determined by the law in a strictly judicial manner. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That is the ration that will be given as just retribution. But on the other hand, we have a gift, and it means a free gift. The gift is not earned, it is not a recompense or a retribution, it is not meritorious, the complete antithesis of the other side. This is solely the result of God's goodness and grace, grace meaning unmerited favor, kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all, the free gift of God to people who are utterly undeserving of that free gift. Grace is the principle that works in the Christian life from beginning to end. 
It controls the whole of the Christian life from beginning to end. As Paul has stated in this same epistle already in chapter 3, verse 24, he says, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. These two masters are completely different, and the terms of service in the two cases is a complete contrast as well. And thirdly and finally, the end to which each, each of these leads is altogether different. Paul is particularly concerned with the difference in the ends. Paul is not here telling us how to arrive at, the, how to arrive at that end because he's already done so. In the case of a life of sin, he says that the steps are disobedience, unrighteousness, uncleanness, and iniquity. The slave of sin is always led along those lines. Going all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve living a life of perfect obedience. But when the devil came, what was his first suggestion? That they should disobey that they should do what God has specifically told them not to do. Disobedience was the first step. The moment you disobey, you also become guilty of unrighteousness, and that in turn leads to iniquity, which leads to ever more iniquity, as we saw in verse 19. The steps on the other side that we have also seen described in verse 16 Obedience leads to righteousness, and righteousness leads to holiness. Again, it's a phenomenal difference. But Paul's chief concern here is not the means, but rather the end to which these two differing, differing slaveries leads. The end to which sin leads is death. Death in every form, physical death, spiritual death, separation from God. Man was never intended to die either spiritually or physically, but as the result of sin and disobedience, he has died spiritually as well as physically. The final end of slavery to sin is death. The best explanation of what Paul means here by death is found in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. Verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Verses 14 and 15, he continues, he says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death and the lake of fire. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wages of sin, the ultimate and final payoff for sin is that second death. This means a final and irreversible separation from God and from the face of God and from the life of God, eternally outside God's life, eternity without life, without love, without mercy, without grace, just eternal misery and suffering. That is the ultimate fate of all the ungodly, outside of any and all loving and pure and holy influences left in their uncleanness and iniquity that just grows worse and worse without relief, altogether shut off and cut off from God. That is the end to which sin leads its slaves. But now, what is the end of those who are slaves of God? What a contrast. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 
So what is eternal life? Surely it does not mean just mean existence without end. It does mean that, but I would imagine that that is the least significant thing about it. Something to think about. This is just the way my mind works or doesn't work, depending on how you look at it. We know that time is a part of creation, right? The evening and the morning were the first day. That was the beginning of time as we understand it. How about if eternal life is eternal because time no longer exists? Try to imagine what it would mean for time to no longer exist. Can't really do it, can you? It's the same with all of creation. God created everything that is, Latin term is ex nihilo, okay? Which means from nothing. God created everything that is from nothing. There was nothing and God spoke and everything that is came into existence. That's really easy to say until you try to close your eyes and imagine nothing. Can you close your eyes and imagine nothing? As soon as you imagine nothing, what happens? Something. <laughs> okay? So, yeah, everlasting existence is way down on the list of significant things about eternal life. Eternal life means the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, the creator of everything from nothing, the one you, who chose you for reasons known only to himself. Jesus himself said in John 17:3, he says, This is eternal life, that they might know, that they might know the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. The knowledge of God is eternal life. If, that was, if that's not enough, it's time for a checkup. Not merely to know about God, which we pretend at now. So what I just explained to you is our, we claim that we know God, okay? We claim to know about God. There's so much that we have no idea about. So far beyond us. If we could explain God, he wouldn't be God. I think so. Who was it? Somebody said that. Somebody smarter than me said that. Yeah, I know. Everybody's smarter than me. So Israel raised his eyebrows back there. <laughs> okay. Um, but to know him and to know him in every ever-increasing degrees of fullness... We shall be perfectly holy. We shall be finally be like our Savior. Paul says elsewhere that it means that we shall receive a crown, a crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4 and 8. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Okay, rabbit trail again. So I always had a hard time with verses like this one. Verses about crowns and rewards and streets of gold and gates of pearl and all of that stuff. I mean, if Paul wants a crown of righteousness, more power to him. He was an exceptional saint. He deserved a crown of righteousness. But he says not only to himself, but to you and to me as well. Now, that is all well and good, but I have no affinity for anything like that. Fancy things and expensive things mean nothing to me. 
Anybody here agree with that? Okay. Okay, now for the slap in the face. Matt Chandler would say, this ain't about you. This is not about me. Um, took my prideful self a lot of years to figure this one out because this isn't about me. It's a reminder and a picture of how completely and totally and fully accomplished our redemption is. It is proof of the e efficacy of our expiation and our propitiation. Okay? With us back in chapter 1, we went over this. Our, our effic uh, the uh, efficacy of our expiation and our propitiation it is proof that my sins have been completely taken off of me. It is proof that Jesus Christ's righteousness has been completely placed upon me. All right? The Lord, the righteous judge, is going to award me a crown of righteousness. Because why? Because when he looks at me, all he sees is what? Jesus Christ. And so our only acceptable response upon receiving these crowns and rewards is to do what? To cast them at the feet of the one who purchased them for us. Revelations 4, 10 and 11, it says, They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Remember, we have spoken much over the last two chapters about our position. We are in him. Our righteousness exists only in him. We're going to receive a crown of righteousness only because of him. Okay, rabbit trail over. Anyway, heaven is perfect. Eternal life is perfect. The glory that God gave to his son, his son is going to give to us. We shall be glorified, completely saved in every respect. That is what eternal life means. Sharing the life of God for all eternity without the slightest suspicion of any hint of sin or evil. No sighing, no tears, no sorrow, no sad farewells. Glory unmixed, absolute glory. Enjoying the life of God himself with all the holy angels. Full life in every respect, body, mind, and spirit. Our whole person entirely delivered from every last hint of sin. It will be something that even Adam did not know. Before the fall, Adam was perfect. We know that. Adam was innocent, but Adam did not have eternal life. If you have eternal life, you can't lose it. Otherwise, it would not be eternal. If he had continued in, in obedience and gone on, he would have gained this. But he failed and he failed. If he had continued in obedience, he would have been granted this eternal life, which the Lord gives us at the end of our salvation. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 1 and 9. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is the outcome of our faith? The salvation of our souls. 
which means the exact same thing. Eternal life begins here in this world. That's why I sometimes tell Paige that he's just a spring chicken. Because if you're going to live forever, what's 90-some years? Okay? Uh, We have eternal life the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. But Paul is concerned here with its ultimate end. There is no contradiction. We are already saved. We already have eternal life. But at the moment, it's just a sneak peek. It's just a foretaste of what is to come. Can we describe what the ultimate end is going to be like? Not hardly. No better than we can describe the Trinity or we can describe any of the things that we've talked about today. 1 Corinthians 2 and 9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man, heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Describe heaven. Can't do it. You haven't ever even imagined it. Okay? So, there are three contrasts. Two masters, two terms of service, and two ends at which we arrive. How is that? How is it that this has happened to us? Quite simply, he says, it is in Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ. It is our position that makes us dead to sin and alive to God. Everything is from him, and without him there is nothing at all. Paul will go on later to say, For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Our blessed future, which has been offered and promised to us, is all in Jesus Christ. It is in him that we are justified freely by God's grace. It is all in Christ, and without him we have nothing. It is because of him that God declares us to be righteous. God imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't stop there. He joins us to him. That has been the great theme of this chapter. In Christ and joined to Christ. Because we are in Christ and joined to Christ, we have been set free from sin. We are dead to sin. Sin no longer has any power over us. Secondly, we are alive unto God. Christ's life is in me, and I am in him. He is the vine, and I am a branch. He is the head, and we are the members of his body. Because of him, we have received the Spirit. The Spirit that dwells in him dwells in us, and it is this Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us and directs us and prays for us. He brings us to the Scripture, and he opens our understanding of that Scripture. It is the Spirit that produces our sanctification. This work is is progressive. Sanctification goes on and on. We have received the Spirit through Jesus Christ because we are in him and joined to him. God's purpose is to bring us to glory. Hebrews 2 and 10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect 
through suffering. The objective is to bring many sons to glory. The glory that we have been trying to describe. That is God's purpose for us. The whole object of salvation is to bring us to that glory where we shall be perfect and spotless and sinless, holy and perfect in the presence of God. That is God's purpose as put forth by Paul again and again and again. Because of this purpose... Is there anything that could be more foolish than to suggest that such preaching leads people to say, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Or shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul scoffs at such a suggestion. The whole objective of justification by faith is to bring us to glory. The end result is eternal life. How can such a purpose ever be any kind of encouragement to sin. The purpose of God is the exact opposite of sin and all it represents and to which it leads. Christ, to whom we are joined, is the exact opposite of sin. What a foolish suggestion it is that such preaching should encourage people to go on sinning. Which brings us to our final question of this chapter. What is it in any man that can ever make him understand such a gospel? What was it that made these critics of Paul say that his preaching of justification by faith was an incitement and an encouragement to sin? How can men say such a thing face to face with such statements and such a gospel? But there is a further question. What causes men and women who have heard the gospel deliberately to prefer to live a life of sin with all of its uncleanness and its iniquity and its unprofitable character and in spite of the fact that they are told that it will certainly lead to that second death of endless suffering? What is it in a man that makes him, when he hears this, deliberately reject it and think that he is clever in doing so. What is it that causes any man who has ever heard the gospel and its offers of the free gift of salvation to refuse it? What is it that causes any man who has ever heard the gospel and what it offers to refuse that free gift? There's only one explanation. Such people are spiritually dead. They are slaves of Satan. They have been blinded by the God of this world. Can there be any other explanation? As you look at the two types of life in every respect, from beginning to end, the two masters, the two types of life live, the, end, the two ends to which they lead, you see people rejecting the glory and deliberately choosing the way which leads to death, and boasting of it and delighting in it, one must one has to ask, what explains that? Well, there is only one explanation. They are dead in trespasses and sins. By the same token, what is it that explains why any of us here are Christians? We are all by birth and by nature 
just as dead in trespasses and sins. What is it that makes any man a Christian? It is grace, all of grace, and it is grace alone. There is no other explanation. A realization of this fact, that God is love, and salvation is by grace alone, convince us to our core that Paul's exhortations found in this chapter are not only reasonable, but that they are inevitable. We must not yield our bodies to sin. We must not allow sin to reign in our mortal flesh or yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness. But rather, we must gladly and gratefully present all that we have and all that we are to the praise of our glorious God. The wages of sin is death. God's free gift, on the other hand, is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life. Knowing the one who loved us enough to choose us for himself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the plan that you laid out that we might be saved from our sin. Saved from ourselves. Saved from your wrath. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who took our sins upon himself, who gave us his righteousness, applied it to our to, uh, to us, so that we now stand before you perfect and white and pure and clean. Lord, help us to live our lives accordingly. Be with us now as we go through the remainder of our service. May all things said and done be for your glory. In Christ's name.